Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And welcome to the Voices of King, a 13-part podcast from the AJC. Originally recorded in 2008 for a short documentary, we sat down with 13 people who were close to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in life and in death. This podcast was originally released in 2018 to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death. Now, as we move into a new era, we're revisiting these important interviews to give you a glimpse inside the making of history. We were proud to document these conversations then, and we are proud to present them to you today. to defy those who sought to kill him. I'm not fearing any man. I ran to the car, what happened, what happened? And when I turn around, then I can see. All I was thinking about was, Lord, don't let him die. You know, don't let him die, don't let him die. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Memphis. I don't go back there. I've been there, but I haven't been there. There's nothing there that I want to remember, really. Why King? Why the Prince of Peace? That was going through my mind. This man, this one man, he taught us how to live, and he taught us how to die. This is The Voices of King, a podcast of 13 voices, 13 people, who bore witness to the last days of the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as told to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ryan Horn. In the late afternoon of April 4, 1968, a group of guys who happened to be the frontmen of the civil rights movement felt they all weathered a storm. Andy Young had spent the day in court testifying in support for Memphis sanitation workers, and the night before, there was a fierce storm and Dr. King powered through a cold he was battling, and he delivered one of the most powerful speeches of his life, the mountaintop speech. They were ready to leave for dinner from the Lorraine Motel. They were all invited to the home of Reverend Samuel Billy Cowles, a Memphis pastor who helped organize the protest Dr. King was in town for. Former AJC photographer, Puya Dianat. Billy Kyle's, uh had some very unique perspective on this. He was the person that invited Dr. King up to Memphis. And at this point in Dr. King's arc, this is when it's evolving beyond just race. This is about poor people. This is about the poor people's march. This is about the sanitation workers' march. This is when Dr. King's philosophy of nonviolence and a lot of the views that he held started to expand beyond uh, the issue of black or white. And the sanitation workers' uh, march was considered a pretty pivotal moment in that. And uh, Reverend Kyles had invited him down. And I thought that out of everyone we spoke with, I felt like he had practiced the story of what had happened that day more, that he had told it to himself again and again because he saw himself almost as a curator of what had happened in that town. He spoke of the museum in terms of having preserved what happened there. I felt like he felt a great responsibility to future generations to make sure that there was a place that they could see and experience and feel the things of that day. And the reason that the Lorraine Motel was, you know, partially turned into a museum. So I feel like he felt a great responsibility to make sure that Memphis's side of the story continued on and how Dr. King came to be there specifically. Uh, and, you know, this is something that he really, I feel like, curator of 
This moment in time in Memphis is his thing. He's taken eight Nobel Prize folks to the Lorraine. He mentioned that. Uh, And to me, he was always the person that was archiving what happened in Memphis that day. And so his perspective was important because it's almost driven by what King's itinerary was supposed to be. We were supposed to do this and then this and because we had planned this. And it felt like he was still going through his date book with us 40 years later when we spoke with him. I'm Samuel Billy Kyles, pastor of Monumental Baptist Church, Memphis, Tennessee. I was a part of a group of ministers 40 years ago who invited Martin Luther King to come to Memphis and help with the sanitation strike. And he did that. And it was during that period that uh, he lost his life to an assassin's bullet. I happened to have been on the balcony when the shot was fired. And I had the great privilege of spending the last hour of his life on earth in room 306 at the Lorraine Motel, which is now a wonderful civil rights museum. Can you describe that last hour, of course? Uh, The whole world wants to know what was the last hour like. (laughs) It was three guys hanging out. We didn't know it was the last hour, so we weren't in prayer, we weren't in meditation. Uh, Abernathy was in the room, and I was in the room, and King was in the room. And of the three, I am the only one left. And the world has asked, what did three preachers do? I said, they talk preacher talk. I said, what's preacher talk? I said, whatever preachers talk about is preacher talk. But it was lighthearted, real lighthearted. He, uh, he was feeling good uh, uh, about how the movement was going because he had gotten so much criticism after he came out against the war in Vietnam. A lot of his friends d- deserted him. But Memphis was a different thing. And so we talked about uh, things that guys talk about. I had, I had recently bought another house. He said, did you buy a new house? I said, I'm buying it. He said, well, don't be like that preacher in Atlanta. What happened was I invited him to dinner and, and some of the other staff people invited them to dinner. I told him dinner was at 5 o'clock because he was so slow. And I told, well, I didn't tell the house to say anything, but when he called the house, they said dinner was at 6. So when I went to get him at 5, he said, no, dinner is not till 6, and I am in no hurry. Have a seat. So I took a seat, and that's how it happened, and I spent that last hour. But he was, he was, he was in a great mood, lighthearted. And he said, did you buy a new house? I said, yeah, I'm buying it. I said, how did you know? He said, well, I have my sources. He said, but don't be like the priest in Atlanta. He bought a new house, invited Coretta and I to dinner, and we got to his house. It was a gorgeous house. But we went inside, and he didn't have a stick of furniture. We had to have dinner on a card table. The Kool-Aid was hot. I don't even like Kool-Aid. The ham was cold, the biscuits were hard, and he just beat the dinner really, really bad. And uh, we stepped out on the balcony after other conversations, and he was talking to people in the courtyard. We were up on the, on the balcony. He's, he's, on the, he's here and I'm here. And he's saying hello to people he hadn't seen. He saw Jesse Jackson and said, Jesse, you're not dressed for dinner. Jesse said, I don't need a shirt and tie. I have an appetite. That's all I need. He said, don't take that whole band to Kyle's house. I said, well, he said, I'm not going to take the band, but I want you to meet the band leader. He's from Memphis. He said, well, bring him on over here. So we're standing here. King is here and I'm here. And Jesse and Ben Branch, the band leader, started walking towards the balcony in front of the room, 306. And... Martin was leaning over, talking to Jesse and Ben. And I said, guys, come on, let's go. 
we have a rally tonight after dinner. So I turned and walked away to go down the stairs. And by the time I got five or six steps, the shot rang out. Kapow! People were ducking behind cars. They didn't know if you know, he'd shoot some more. And they were, it was, it was pandemonium. I looked around and saw that he had been knocked from the railing back onto the, onto the, onto the floor of the balcony. I rushed to his side. There was a great hole in the side of his face. There was a bigger wound under his shirt I could not see. Uh, the bullet's called a dum-dum. As it goes through the barrel, I'm told, it heats up and it doesn't come out straight. It comes out jagged. And so it tore all of his chest out and there was blood everywhere. I ran in the room to pick up the phone to call an ambulance. But you need the operator to use the phone. When the operator heard the shot, she left the switchboard, came out into the courtyard, looked up and saw Martin on the floor, and she had a heart attack. She died a few days later. But that, I was beaten on the wall, said, answer the phone, answer the phone. Of course, she couldn't answer it because she was in the yard. And so I ran back out. And the police were coming, and I hollered to them, call an ambulance on your police radio. Dr. King has been shot. And they said, where did the shot come from? So there's a famous picture pointing to the building across the street uh, where the shot came from. And then uh, the police came and blocked the... Some few people got up, but many did not come up on the balcony because they were trying to protect the murder scene. And then um, finally, I, I took a spray from one of the beds and covered him from his neck down. He never spoke a word. That bullet tore all of his chest and part of his, his face out. And then I got somebody on the switchboard and I had Jesse to call Mrs. King and I called my home. And I told them what hospital to take him to and they did. And we waited and we waited. Finally the word came that we lost him. Maybe three or four hours later. We lost him. And I had no words to describe my feelings then. And here I am 40 years later, I still have no words to describe how I felt. But we went on. We went on anyhow with the things that we had planned to do. But I wondered, why was I there at that moment in time in history? Why was I there at that place at that time? And then God gave me a revelation. Crucifixions have to have witnesses, and they have to be honest witnesses. I was there to be a witness, and my witness must be true. A lying witness is dangerous. A witness who has no, who, who won't tell what he knows is of no consequence. And so my witness must be true. Martin Luther King Jr. didn't die in some foolish way. He didn't overdose. He wasn't shot by a jealous lover. He wasn't shot leaving the scene of a crime. Here is a man with an earned PhD degree at 28, a Nobel Peace Prize at 34, at that time, that the youngest to ever get one. Here he is with all these wonderful skills as an orator. All the things he could have been with such skills. You're an ambassador, university president, mega churches all over America and even the world. And here he is dying on a balcony in Memphis, Tennessee, helping garbage workers, the least of these. And they said, we will shoot this dreamer and see what happens to his dream. That's where the witness comes in. The witness will readily admit, yes, you can kill the dreamer. But you absolutely cannot kill the dream. 
And in 40 years, the dream is still living, 40 years later. I don't think we'll ever come to a point where we can say, now Martin's dream has been realized, we can go find some sun and sand. I don't think that's going to happen. It's, it's, it's a rebirth every year or sooner. Uh, it's a work in progress. When you get one problem solved, the seed to a new problem is found in the solution of the old. And so we, we, we go in stages. It won't just be that the dream is fulfilled. That, that won't happen. Each generation will have something to work towards making that dream a reality. Every generation will have it. And here we are, 40 years later, and I'm, you've already said you're going to ask me later, but I kept talking. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's amazing to see how the world has changed in those 40 years. Um, every people that is working towards democracy and freedom and justice, they use Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement as a model. You hear it all over the world. People come here, they visit me in my office, they visit me the Civil Rights Museum, and they want to know, how did you guys do, what did you feel when you were doing? They're so full of questions. Uh, and that we are still working towards making the dream a reality. And it is a work in progress. But they want to know. I have had the privilege of taking eight Nobel Peace Prize winners to the museum, including President Mandela. And one of the things that struck me so about his visit he he was so moved. He said, what did you fellows talk about that last hour? What mood was he in? He said, so very often when we were, we were, we were low in spirit and thought we weren't doing well, we would think of Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement in America and our hope would be renewed. And he said, what, what, what did you talk about? Just, just, just tell me. And, and I'd tell him that we talked about the movement and we talked about all kinds of things. He said, but you know, people say that I am not supposed to be emotional. This is Mandela talking. He said, they say that I'm not supposed to be emotional. But with, and with all that Mandela had been through, 27 years in prison, loss of his rights and family, he, uh, he said, this is the place where Martin died. And he said, this is the place. And he openly wept Mandela. 27 years, 33 years after, after Martin's death, Mandela weeps at the death site openly. I took Mr. Gorbachev through, and even with an interpreter, he was so moved, his, his color changed, the, the red came to his face. And almost everybody that I've taken to that museum all Nobel Peace Prize winners. I take other than Nobel Peace Prize winners, but I take a lot of Nobel Peace Prize winners through the museum and their reaction's the same. All of them have that, that same reaction. And so... No, I was gonna ask a question about yourself. Uh -huh. um, when you go to the museum all those times, what is that feeling that you get? It's like therapy for me. At first it wasn't, it was painful. It was so painful. The feeling was so painful. Uh, and I made myself 
work with the committee that reconstructed the room the way it was because the chair that I sat in, the same kind of chair is there. The spread that I covered him with, the same kind of spread is on the beds. And now, once it came to me that I was to be the witness, it was like I know what I'm supposed to do. And it was so much of a relief of wondering why was I there. I knew it was too powerful to be happenstance. It just happened. I just, it, was, it was too much. That I couldn't handle. But I could handle. And when I share the last hour of King's life, no matter what, I'm what else I'm talking about, no matter what the subject is, people will ask me, what was the last hour like? What did you do? What, you know, what, and I share it with them. And, and, and every person you know, has, his, has his moment. And I give them that. I give them that time. What happened that night? Uh, and who was there? I mean, do you have any recollections of that evening? I mean, were you planning for the next day? or After the assassination? About 3 o'clock in the morning, we met. I have, a, I have a photo of it someplace. Uh, and some decisions needed to be made. And one of them was that Ralph, Ralph Abernathy would become the president. We would have a press conference that morning. The, the second thing was that, that uh, The poor people's campaign would go on, no question about it. We're going to have the poor people's campaign. And the Memphis movement would go on to get the sanitation workers, economic justice. Once we made that decision, uh, we just kind of hung out at the hotel. Some of the people went to the uh, funeral home. I didn't go. I couldn't bring myself to go because Mrs. King had given permission for autopsy, and you know what they do to the body for autopsy, so I didn't want to see that. And then the undertaker, I give him a lot of credit. He was, he was handling the service today, R.S. Lewis. Robert never used the fact that he embalmed Martin Luther King, because I told him what, hosp what the hospital to take him to, and then I told him what undertaker to take him to. And he never used the fact that he embalmed Martin Luther King to enhance his business. You would never know it if I didn't tell it. He, he's never put it in any, any writing or any stories. Maybe somebody put it in stories. Uh, but he never, and there was a photographer, a photojournalist, who died recently, Ernest Withers. A lot of these are his pictures, and he has chronicled the civil rights movement all the way through from the Emmett Till death all the way up to present times. Ernest was in the, in the embalming room, and he would not take one picture of Martin until he was fully dressed. Can you imagine what he would have made by taking autopsy pictures of Martin Luther King? But he wouldn't do it. Ernest Withers is his name. And I tell that story, too, that Ernest uh, had so much character. He just, until he was fully dressed. And then we had a memorial service that morning, and the word had gotten out where he was at the funeral director, and two blocks of line, a line two blocks long, uh, was formed, and I had to go out and tell the people, I know you're waiting in line to view the body, but we can't keep him from Mrs. King any longer. We have to take him to Atlanta. And they understood. Nobody panicked or said anything. And so we accompanied the body to Atlanta, and the film director said, just tell Mrs. King if, you know, if she prefers another casket, that's okay. They can send this one back. 
I think they did, too, uh, send it back. But we got him into the next funeral home, and then we came back to Memphis. I can't even remember that Sunday what my service was like. I don't know what I preached or if I preached. Some details I can remember, like the tie that he wore, I picked it out, and the bullet was so severe, it severed the knot, turned it upside down, and that caught my eye. I saw that, but I have no recollection of what I did Sunday morning, or if I had service Sunday morning. I don't remember what I did when I, when I went back to the motel to the Lorraine. When we come back, Kyles talks about how the mountaintop speech was almost not given by Dr. King. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to the Voices of King. We continue with Reverend Samuel Billy Giles. Do you remember, um, what, what is one of the things that um, kind of stood out the most about the funeral um, for, for, during that time? Um, I think it was the night. It was, it was the, for me, the crowds, it was unbelievable. They stood just to get a, a glimpse of the casket in the mule train, in the wagon, and the reverence that they had for that movement and how people were just openly weeping. Uh, I did not try to get an Ebenezer. I went on to Morehouse. One of my friends lived on the campus almost. And after a while, I just couldn't, I couldn't. Before the eulogy was given, Mahalia Jackson was singing the same song that she sings at the motel. And I was, I was like a zombie, I was moving doing what, need, what needed to be done, but I had no real recognition of it at all. I couldn't stand to read an account in the paper, so I saved all the papers and all the magazines. And then I went somewhere. One, I went, where did I go? Went to Albany, Georgia. I took all the papers and I preached there a week and read all those papers, read all the books and magazines. I was like a loss un un until I got that revelation that I was there to be a witness. I was like a lost individual just, just doing stuff with no real recognition of it. never even occurred to me until much later, he could have shot me, you know. If he had mistake, but the distance wasn't that far. You didn't have to be an expert. It wasn't that far. But if he, he could have shot Andy, I mean, all the people that were in the courtyard, he could have kept shooting. But that didn't happen. And I feel so honored and so blessed because very often. Pioneers are not around to walk the trails that they blaze. They blaze them and they're gone. And so here I am 40 years later, to a large extent still blazing trails that I walked on, uh, walked on trails that I 
that I blaze, or help to blaze. And once it was clear that's what I was to do, that's, try, that's why I'm, I'm sitting here in this chair today after a week away, mail is that high, telephone calls are that high, church is tomorrow, I preach tomorrow, and then I'll go to California and speak to two or three schools. If I'm invited, I try to go as the witness. How did your uh, sermons in the weeks that followed change? I mean, was there particular direction that this made you, I mean, I assume you didn't immediately realize it, why you had been a witness to that, but in the few weeks that followed, the one, the first week, the second week, your sermons that you delivered, how, how were they different than normal? Were they different than normal? I think I was preaching to me more than the congregation on how to handle this. If we say in, in, our, in our faith and our belief that God will take us through any trial or any trouble that is in our lives, do you really believe that? I mean, is, is that just a saying? Is that something you do? Is that how I comfort people who lost this loved one today in that uh, at the funeral today in that fire? Uh, am, am, am I saying to them what a wonder her life was and, and trying to balance that with, if she was so good, why was she taken? You know, um, so I was doing that. Here, Martin Luther King, so I, so I preached a lot about love. Because for a few minutes, you know, I was like revolutionary material. I mean, God, if you do this to a person who's talking about justice and freedom and nonviolence and you shoot him down like a mad dog, what else is there? So I had to preach my way through that to really believe that uh, what I was doing made a difference, what Martin was doing made a difference. And I'm sure the spillage, some spilled over into to the congregation, but it was, it, was, it was me as much as, preaching to me as much as anyone else. That this really, I mean, now is the time of testing. One does not know how much faith he has until it's time to use it. You know, how much faith do I have? I don't know. Do I have enough to do this? To say that uh, James Orway is the killer, what do we do with him? Do we kill him? You know, Abernathy was saying, I'm not so concerned about who killed Martin Luther King as what killed him. And we kind of picked up on that. And I would suspect at least 10 years, we were traumatized. It's like having a loved one who's quite ill. And you kind of expect that they're not going to make it. But even when they die, it's not what you expect. I mean, it's, it's, it's more than you, it's more to handle than you think you can even though you expect it. Now think of what it's like in the service I just had today. She was healthy, walking around, doing, doing wonderful things, semi-retired, and here she's just taken. Wow. Uh, and you have to do, at you know, three o'clock in the morning, you get a call. They know it's nothing I can do. I can't bring her back. But at least pastor can say something to help me get through this, this thing. And in some instances, we, the capacity that we have to go from, from laughter to tears in a millisecond, and, and very often at funerals here, you will hear laughter at the funeral. I told them today, I said, in the early days, in Bible days, somebody died, didn't have family. They would hire whalers. 
They would go out and hire people to mourn and groan and holler. I said, but we have a sign up here, no whalers needed. And the people, they laugh and they get us. And you don't allow the moment of death to rob you of all the, the beauty and the things that you've experienced in your life. You just, I mean, you don't do that. Is, I'm sorry. Is that, <clears throat> do you think, I mean, the one of the first thoughts that you said went through your head was uh, you wanted to cover up, Martin. You wanted to put that bed No, no. I, I, was that later? No, it was at the time he was lying on the floor. Uh, do you think part of that was you don't want to remember him that way? You don't want others to see him? I don't think so. Okay. <clears throat> uh, we were trying to, you, you, you feel so helpless. You need to do something. He was lying there. I didn't cover his face. I just went from his neck down, down to his knees. But I don't think that was part of it. Talk, talk about real quick, um, a little bit, like how long you knew uh, Dr. King before this moment, and <clears throat> and just talk a little bit about that. We knew each other in the church circles first. We were young pastors young husbands, young fathers, and we knew each other in the uh, Baptist Convention. He worked his way up to being the president of the Congress. The Congress was the teaching arm of the convention. It was the largest organization that African Americans had in America, the National Baptist Convention. But they fired him, president of the convention, wanted to be the Negro to go to in America. And he thought Martin was threatening that. Martin didn't do anything. I mean, we just loved him and elected him president because he was smart. And, uh, and so when he fired him, and, he, and the president never really, he was a great preacher, but he never really supported civil rights. He was saying to us in the South, you should be producing and not protesting. And it just, I mean, that just set a blaze under us. So eventually, many of us pulled away from the, the main body, organized another convention. Martin was never an officer in the convention, but at least he had a home to go to. Uh, so that's how we knew each other as pastors in the church circle. Talk about um, just the conversation of getting him to come to Memphis for the, uh, for the, gar you know, for the um, garbage work workers and, and, and that conversation, bringing him here. Talk about that. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a, a, a known deal that if, if you really got a movement going in a city, at some point you knew it was time to bring Martin in. We had brought and other speakers, Roy Wilkins, who was the president of NAACP. We brought in uh, Bayard Rustin, whatever, whoever happened to be in the news, we'd bring them in. And this happened around the country. We'd bring them in and then uh, say, okay, now it's time to get Martin. So the first time we call, he didn't get the message. And the staff said, Hey, we support you, but we simply don't have time to come to Memphis. There was some story that the staff didn't want him to come because they were concerned about his life, and that wasn't the case. They were just so far behind. The Poor People's Campaign was going to be unlike anything we had ever tried. Martin went around the country gathering poor people, poor blacks, poor whites, poor browns, poor yellows, and was going to take them all to Washington, make speeches about poverty, and not go home, build tents on the mall, and live in those tents on the mall until this country did something about poverty. He said, America is spending $500,000 to kill one Viet Cong and $54 on poverty, 54 or 56 
and we can do better than that. I saw him cry in Marks, Mississippi, stood on the porch of a home he had been in, little kids running around, just like third world country, their stomachs bloated, people having paper on the wall to keep the weather out. It was, it was unbelievable. And so he had a real, real compassion. He had real compassion for the, for the poor. He was never poor himself. And so the, they were behind on getting people to, the, to, to sign up for the campaign. So the staff, but when he found out that we had invited him, he said, oh, no, we've got to go to Memphis. He said, this is what the campaign is about. It's not about lazy shiftless people who don't want to work. It is about people working and not making enough to live out of. He said, that's a crime to work someone and not pay them a decent wage. So he overruled them and said, no, we're going to Memphis. And that's how he wound up coming to Memphis. And then we got greedy. We said, would you come back and lead a march, a work stoppage in support of the sanitation workers. And he agreed. Right on the pulpit, we was just, he had just finished the speech. And we said, can we announce it now? He said, work it out. He said, work it out. I said, yeah. So we announced on the pulpit, this was, this was not the mountaintop speech, this was the speech before. We announced that we're working on a date for Dr. King to come back and lead black people in a march of support, a work stoppage in support of the works. And the place just erupted. I mean, they went bananas. And that's, and he, he, was, he was feeling good about the Memphis, uh, uh, the Memphis protest because in so many other instances, there was so much going on uh, that it felt like we were slipping. We weren't having the successes that we knew we should have been having. And so he was feeling really good about Memphis. Can you talk about that last speech, the mountaintop speech? Can you yeah, the, the, the last speech, the mountaintop speech almost didn't take place. There were tornado warnings at night. There were thunderstorms. And he thought there wouldn't be many people at the temple. So he told several of us, so you guys go over and have the meeting. I'll stay here and work on the campaign because we're so far behind. Well, when we got to Mason's Temple, and the church was nearly full, in spite of the weather. It was nearly full. Abernathy walked in, Jesse Jackson walked in, I walked in, and I think Andy walked in. And the people started clapping. And Abernathy's preacher since said, these people ain't clapping for us. They think Martin coming in behind us. And so he said, I ain't making no speech tonight. And he went to the phone and called Martin and said, man, you should come over here. The people have come in the weather to hear you. We had no way of knowing that would be the last speech of his life. No way. And when, uh, when Abernathy introduced him, something unusual happened. He introduced Martin fully 20 minutes. Well, in our tradition, we know how to get the introducer out of the way. You don't take that much time. But nobody said a word. 20-minute introduction, we usually say, Amen, brother, Amen, 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 sister. 
That means get out of the way and let the speaker come on. None of that. And Martin Tease, when he got up, he said, I thought Dr. Abernathy wasn't going to make a speech. And he laughed about it. And then he went on into his presentation. And that night he talked about death more than I'd heard him talk about it in a long time. There were so many death threats against his life. He said, stop telling me about it. I don't want to hear it. Just, just, don't tell me, don't tell me. He talked about the plane that he came over to Memphis in from Atlanta had been under guard all night because there had been so many death threats. He talked about the time he was autographing books in New York. A demented black woman came up to him. He's seated at the table autographing books. A demented black woman came up and said, are you Martin Luther King Jr.? He said, yes. She reached over the table and plunged a letter opener into his chest. Now he's telling the audience this. Plunged it into his chest. And when he was recovering, he got greetings from all over the world. But he does not remember what they said. The most telling came from a teenage girl. And she wrote, Dear Dr. King, I read about your misfortune and I'm so sorry. The New York Times said, The blade of the letter opener was so close to your aorta that if you had sneezed, you would have drowned in your own blood. And she put at the bottom, I'm so glad you didn't sneeze. And he picked up on that and did a whole litany. And I'm glad I didn't sneeze. If I'd sneezed, I would have missed the Selma to Montgomery March. If I'd sneezed, I would have missed the voting rights bill. If I had sneezed, I would have missed the chance to see these young people fighting for their rights all over the South. If I had sneezed, I would have missed the chance to tell America and the world about a dream I had one August day in Washington, D.C. And he just went on about what he would have missed if he had sneezed. By that time, we were on our feet, we were crying, we didn't know why we were crying. We had no way of knowing that would be the last speech of his life. It is as if he preached himself through the fear of death. He got it out of him, much like I was doing to go on after the assassination. And he said, I may not get there with you, but you will get to the promised land because God has allowed me to go up on the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. And I am so certain he knew he wouldn't get there. He never thought he'd live to be 40. He was 39. He said, I may not get there with you at the same time knowing that he would not get there. But can you imagine what we would have felt had he said to us straight up, I won't get there with you, so, but you will get there. So he softened it for us and said, I may not, knowing that he would not. And that was some very, I mean, that, would, that was some powerful stuff going on in that, at that moment. And he said, I may not get there with you, but you'll get there because God has allowed me to go up on the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. And tonight, I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. And we were just wiped out by that time. And I think by the next day, that's why he was so lighthearted. He had gone through that, got it out of him. Whatever happens, gonna happen. Not that he didn't want to live beyond 40. He just thought he never would. And the next day he was lighthearted and just fun-loving. That's when he and, he and Andy were pillow fighting that next day. And he was making jokes again about my preaching for Abernathy. Abernathy said, I need an evangelist. Martin said, why don't you get Kyle's? He said, yeah, what are you doing on such such a date? I said, well, I'll be in Columbus, Georgia with Fred Lofton. And I did that even after the assassination. He said, wait a minute, Martin, this is Martin talking. Anybody with good sense would rather spend a week preaching in the city of Atlanta 
than in Columbus, Georgia. I said, what does that mean? I don't have good sense? He said, that's not, what I, that's not what I said. I said, anybody with good sense? It was that kind of lightheartedness. He talked very warm, warmly and affectionately about his parents. His mother's father pastored Ebenezer, their church. And Daddy King, the church became available. We call it vacant. And Daddy King was preaching at that church in hopes that they would say, this is the guy we want. This is Martin telling this. And he said, uh, but, and, and Dad got to church. But he didn't only get to church. He got Mama too. <laughs> he got the Mama. And it was just, just guys talking uh, with no knowledge that that would be our last time. In the next episode of The Voices of King, we hear from Ambassador Andrew Young, who describes the very last minutes of Dr. King's life. A special thanks to AJC reporters Rosalind Bentley and Ernie Suggs. Also to Senior Editor of Visuals Sandra Brown, Senior Managing Editor Mark Wallagore, and our Editor-in-Chief Kevin Raleigh. Music by Matthew Head. Be sure to visit www.ajc.com backslash MLK50 for the AJC's coverage of honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Ryan Horn, and you've been listening to The Voices of King. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.